0: I'd like to say that I didn't hear music with my head. I heard it with my stomach. Did it make me move before I intellectualized it? Other people think, oh yeah, that's really great lyric. But I got captured by the fabric of the music. And I spent my entire career recognizing what I believe will have a career that will continue.
1: Bruce Garfield began his career as a pioneer in band merchandising, signing deals with Led Zeppelin, Cream, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, Rolling Stones, and many others. He moved on to work with renowned mentors at cutting-edge record labels and record producers. He was recruited by Capitol Records as vice president of artist development and press, making him as the youngest senior executive in Capitol history. Then appointed VP in AR talent acquisition and co-founder of the Manhattan EMI Blue Note Label Group, he led the career development of artists such as Duran Duran, Natalie Cole, Bob Seger, The Band, David Bowie, Steve Miller Band, Little River Band, Grace Jones, The Knack, Iron Maiden, Little Steven Van Zandt, and many others. Bruce and his wife, Beth, relocated to Columbus in November of 2017. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of Gravity Podcast. We're with Bruce Garfield. Bruce, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast.
0: Thank you. I'm really pleased to join you.
1: Yeah, I, um, I'm just looking at your background and seeing all these records hanging on the wall and um, excited to kind of hear you know your, your journey to the work that you're doing today. Why don't we start at the beginning? Tell me a little bit about kind of your early memories, you know, what kind of family you grew up in and, and a little bit about, you know, your your parents and siblings and where you're from and all that fun stuff.
0: Well, we'll start with I was born and raised in the Bronx, New York, and born into a household with a father that and mother that loved music. My father was into the old crooners, the Sinatras, and Tony Bennett's, and Nat King Cole's. And my mother was into popular music. In fact, from the moment I woke and she pulled me out of bed as an elementary school student, she had the radio on in the kitchen. She'd be singing, whistling with a canary to popular music. And in fact, my brother ended up becoming a child actor and was in the musical music. So I was always around music, and I think one of my favorite toys as a child was that my parents bought me a record player. And I had all of the kids' records, and I'd ride on a little horse and sing along with them. So it was just, it was always a happy household. In fact, later on, my parents even got into Latin music. I guess it was a craze at some point. So I, I just felt that I had kind of a tune to my life. There was a melody and I had no awareness there was a music business. All I knew was there was music.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. and, And you really remember that kind of at the early days, you know, tell me maybe a little bit more about like what that was like to be around music and, and having parents that loved music, a family that loved music. I mean, I, I love music and I can remember, you know, my dad playing tapes and, you know, my parents, you know, and discovering, I mean, music for me has been such a important part of my life in so many ways. You know, what was it like growing up in that environment where it was so highly valued? It made me happy.
0: It made, Hmm. you know, it it gave me a spirit that I just didn't have without that outside influence. In fact, um, I never even aspired or thought about playing an instrument until I got to middle school and realized there was a junior band. And my parents at that point couldn't really afford to buy me an instrument through a special program. They were able to rent me a, a trumpet for a few dollars a month. And I wasn't tall enough to play basketball. I wasn't able to bang a ball over the fence. I wasn't fast enough to run track. We didn't have a swimming team or a football team in the Bronx. We had a a cement field. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I found myself surrounded by a different kind of team. It was a ragtag group of people, many of whom I never had known through elementary school, because it was a convergence of four elementary schools to this one junior high. And it was an equalizer. We had a blind kid in the in the room, and I was introduced to all these kids of different ethnicities and backgrounds. Mm And so it really was a big help in socialization because I'd lived in a cocoon in elementary Mm -hmm. school being surrounded by kids in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And it taught me things like hand-eye coordination and even mathematics. And it boosted my self-esteem because I realized Mm -hmm. I was accomplishing something I didn't realize there was a bass clef. I didn't realize there were chords. I just knew that I played trumpet, first trumpet, and I would be singular if I didn't have my buddies playing second and third trumpet. So it was really an uplifting experience. And Mm -hmm. it started to make me start to listen to music in a different way because then I was listening to instrumentation and tempo as opposed to just a singer and all this great music.
1: And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: then I went on to high school and stayed in the band. It was a bigger band. And then I graduated and my parents got divorced and I moved to Los Angeles with my mother. My father was very gracious because he had to allow us to move there and he knew that we'd have a, a better quality of life. You were how old when you moved to LA? Just almost 18 years old. Okay, and I went to the first year to Pierce Junior College, and then I enrolled at UCLA. And the it was an era where of social responsibility, the civil rights movement, all you know, Vietnam War was raging, and so I was exposed to all of a sudden this, this div, these different influences, all the San Francisco bands, people who spoke with mm. social, you know, a social voice, and mm-hmm. I also realized there was no place in a band that I wanted to be in for a trumpet. Mm. So I had a band in in college and I then realized I needed to book it. So I started calling venues. I knew nothing about it. I still Mm. didn't realize there was a business of music. I just knew there were bands and performances and you saw them on TV, you heard them on the radio or you read about them. So I started to book us, you know, we were living in the Valley and one day
1: what instrument did you switch to?
0: I didn't switch to anything. I sang. Whoops. Oh, okay. <laughs> People say, if if don't sing Garfield because no one would believe you've been in the music business if you sing. <laughs> so I made my instrument choice, the telephone. What do you play? Uh-huh. I play telephone. Yeah. So um, it was in an era of upheaval, and I was called by a a couple of young people who were buddies of mine that had moved and migrated from Ann Arbor to Los Angeles. And they were living in Laurel Canyon. They called me and said, would well, you want to make some money this week and sell posters? And it will be at a Jimi Hendrix concert. I'm saying, oh my God, Jimi Hendrix? And you get paid? So I went and sold posters. And at the end of the evening, when we were counting the posters in and paying off, you know, the road manager of the royalties, This fellow with a big, bushy beard and very long hair came over to me and said, hey, kid, I like the way you handle yourself. Here's my card. Call me at my office. Come by. And to that point in life, the only office I'd ever been to was the doctor, the dentist, the dean of admissions, and sometimes once or twice the principal's office. And I walked in. he was a well-known producer and uh, songwriter named Jerry Goldstein. And, as I walked in his reception, I saw gold records and different awards. and i it, it started to crystallize It was a business of music. Mm. So he had, you know tried to hire me, and I said, "You know, I, I really don't want to leave school." And I would go out on weekends, though, because I didn't have a class on Friday or Monday. And I'd go on the weekends, and what i my job was to go along with a group that was on some sort of a regional tour. And sell the posters. Mm-hmm. And this went on. I went out with Jimi Hendrix. I went out with Donovan. I went out with a bunch of different artists. And then finally, one autumn, he said, listen, I really want you to come to work for me full time. Uh, and the Cream were going on their final farewell tour. And I think I was just 20 years old. And I was mm. a you know idolized them. I had their mm. tape in my car all the time. So I I bailed. I gave my parents coronaries, but I bailed on university. And I was also uh-huh. just, I was just like taking the classes or sticking with the classes that meant something to me, philosophy, psychology, music. Yeah. What did I need in a second or third language? Why did I need calculus? I didn't feel the need for that you know, organically. So yeah. I went on the road with the cream. And there was an opening act called Terry Reed. It had a British tour manager. Now, I didn't hang out with the band. I was like in still, you know, starstruck. And I cried the last night of the tour because it was so monumental to see Eric Clapton and Jack Bruce, you know, 30, 40 nights. You know, it was like, my God, I'd never in my life expected something like this would happen. And after the tour was over. I happened to bump into the tour manager of Terry Reid at the um, JFK in the old TWA terminal. He screamed, Garfield, Garfield, you blank, blank. (laughs) And he said, where are you going? I said, back to Los Angeles. He goes, oh, do you fancy Jimmy Page? I said, oh, my God, I've been a Yardbirds fan forever. Well, we're coming to L.A. next month with his new band, Led Zeppelin. Why don't you come down? So, of course, you know, I'd seen the movie Blow Up four times just to see the Yardbirds break up their guitars. And I'd become friends with Eric Burden. So they came into town. I went to see them with Eric, who was like a god to them and to me. And then I realized after the first time, well, why don't I show them the posters that we did on these, you know, Cream and Hendrix and Donovan? Because no one was doing anything like that. There was no merchandising business. So if you were on stage, Brett, and I walked up and took a picture of you, one, you'd never have approval. And two, you'd find it in every bookshop or head shop, record shop in the country within a month and never see a penny from it. Mm. So Jerry, coming from the record business, decided he would pay them a royalty. No one was doing it and so basically i'd sit there in his office basically becoming a messenger boy led zeppelin said hey we want in we want to do this and in three in a year's time i signed three quarters of the bands in the world the poster rights because it was found wow. money
1: and then finally let me, let me hop in there yeah. Yeah, sorry. sorry. So let me, let me let me just hop in here for a second because I could probably listen to you just tell these stories. I mean, you kind of like glossed over, you know, Cream and Led Zeppelin, and <laughs> I mean, this is pretty cool. You know, you're you're kind of like catching some of the most you know iconic bands and and musicians. You know, either you know late in their bands, you know, career or early in their band's career. I mean, I don't know. It sounds unbelievable to me in hindsight, kind of what was like the like the felt experience about that? Was it like, yeah, like this is really cool. Like like I, I cannot believe this is my life. I, I'm loving this or were you still, you know, a 20 something year old kid trying to figure out, you know how you are gonna make it? You know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of you know wondering like, well, what was this really like for you?
0: Well, I found myself exposed to a world that I never knew existed. And though I was still kind of shy being around some of these artists because I idolized them, I didn't even realize they were almost the same age I was. Mm -hmm. I felt this is a fabulous experience. It's exciting. I get to hear music. And I'm getting to meet people who are well-accomplished musicians and went on to become famous. And then I signed... The acts that were starting to come up, like The Doors or Canned Heat or, you know, just all kinds of artists early on in their careers and would realize later on that I was selecting them because of my years. They hadn't mm. happened really big. And I was jumping in early. I never thought about it in those terms but it was exciting to me. And then as a result of going after those bands, I met the managers and the record labels and their agents. And I had no concept of who I was or what I was. I was just a kid from the Bronx, the son of a bartender who was just doing a job. Here's my job, do it well. And I could not have imagined that this existed. And it just, one, It was like leapfrog, one thing after another started to happen to me. And I was kind of, you know, like, I guess enthusiasm is contagious. And I was always enthusiastic about what I did. And I was just, they called me Brucie. Hey, Brucie, come here. and Brucie, let's, I want to hire you. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And I felt like it was time to get more involved with the music itself. So I was approached by one of the artist managers. and. He hired me to work at his management company. And then I met, came in contact with the record label. And the record label hired me to work with them. So I was learning a craft. I just knew that if I knew about business and marketing, I developed a sense of marketing. But I also was had one foot in the world of creativity. So I was kind of a unique character because people worked in kind of one lane. And, you know, I was groomed by and mentored by people who carved the face of the modern music business.
1: Um, Let me ask you something just, you know, I'm kind of curious from like a personality standpoint. I mean, this is just kind of my you know experience of you. I think you've got like a, a high energy and, and, you know you know you said your instrument was the phone, but I would say you know your ability to talk and to be you know energetic and to kind of get people you know very likable, you know and I'm just wondering like you know where's that come from? Is that your personality? Is that the Bronx? Is it your parents like but because i'm I'm also you know kind of curious about how you know you're constantly just getting hired, you know, come with us, Brucey, come here, Bruce you know, uh, manager, record label, like, you know, those, maybe it's different today, but like, those are jobs that are not easy to come by, not easy to get your foot in the door, you know, but it seems like for you, it was like doors were opening kind of one after the next is, is, you know, what do you attribute that to? Well,
0: my mother had a very outgoing personality. She was the, you know, the head of the Cub Scout troop. She coached a little league team. She played ball better than most men. You know, so I had that personality from her. And also, my father worked really hard. Long hours, he was a bartender. Neither of my parents had gone to university. And so I, you know, we needed, a, you know, I helped out financially. So I had a paper route. Then I graduated to delivering groceries for the local grocer. And I just felt that I, I just kind of liked to do everything really well. And my mother was like, She was really on top of things and happy, but was serious about dealing with life itself and responsibilities. So, again, that was just kind of instilled in my DNA. My mother had, through her whole life, the gift of youth and spirit. So, I attribute that to my mother. And then I never was conscious of how I was perceived. All I knew. It was a job to do, and I just wanted to do it really well, and that's what I believe people were perceiving in me. I mean, for years I had no, you know, a sense of self. I was just doing the gig, and yeah. it took you know someone to tell me, you know, kid, this is what how we look at you.
1: So yeah. I'm not. Yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, I I do no, it's okay. I think the um, it's a good message. You know, a lot of times. These kind of, you know, early jobs, which seem kind of maybe, you know, like, what is the point, you know, other than making a little money? That's I'm not gonna be, you know, deliver papers forever, or I don't want to go into the newspaper business. But there's so much to be learned from the experience, you know, and I could see how you learn that doing a good job, working hard, showing people that you're a hustler, like you got validation out of that, you learn from that. And it became part of who you were professionally, which was probably um, attractive to people. They saw you, they saw you, you know, doing a good job and they wanted to give you more and, and opportunities kind of unfolded from there.
0: My parents were both really down to earth. We grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly Jewish and with some Italian and Irish sprinkled in. And, kind of the fabric was giving, you know, helping somebody. I I couldn't call anybody by their first name without asking permission. Everybody was Mr. or Mrs. Or I thought I had all these aunts and uncles because I had to call hi, uncle Stuart, but they weren't really blood relatives. So my parents cared about other human beings. You know, they, they would reach out to help someone. I learned, I don't know how to walk through a door without opening it and letting a woman pass. I don't know how to do anything without saying thank you. And I think one of the greatest joys in life is being motivated to applaud and care. So I attribute that to my parents and it stays with me to this day. I mean, I just, I care. I give a damn about other people. I give a damn about the world. And I really have no real sense of how am I benefiting. I'd rather take care of someone else. take care of myself. I don't put myself first on the list. Sometimes that's Mm -hmm. been a mistake in business, but that's just who I am.
1: Yeah. So before we move on with kind of your career, I have to kind of just like pause because so far you've named Hendrix, Clapton, you know, Morrison, Page Plant. I mean, you got to give me a story. Tell me something. I mean, were you were you you were signing these guys? Were you engaging with them? Were you like around for the party for the show? Like, you know, give give me something, Bruce. Well, my boss
0: Jerry decided he was going to rent a house. He rented this huge mansion out of a movie in Beverly Hills, eight bedrooms. You know, houseboy. May I was making one hundred and twenty five dollars a week. But I was like, oh, my God, I had an expense account at the Whiskey and Go-Go. Because in those days, a national new act would play Wednesday and Thursday. And then the next one would play Friday and Saturday. And I was just, you know, going into the dressing rooms and showing them the posters and signing them. So when we moved into this big house and Eric Byrd moved in with us, I would start to invite them up. You know, hey, come on up to the house. And it. Eventually, we would have parties with 100, 200 people. In those days, everyone was getting high. It was crazy. And, you know, the house was immense. We had a complete reconstruction of an English pub. The basement was a huge Mexican cantina, Olympic swimming pool, gardens. And we would end up with people like still hanging out in the morning with the houseboy and the maid, serving them breakfast and cleaning up. It was not uncommon to have the Beach Boys or Sly Stone lived up the road in Bel Air, and these parties became famous. So when people would come to town, Led Zeppelin would come back to town as their career grew. They call me. Someone said, "But did you know them when they did this?" I said, "Yeah, they called me when they did that." Or I can't tell certain other stories. It was be really out of character. <laughs> but you, this was just like magical. You know, yeah. you know yeah. that the, these people were there. And um, we made use of the house because of business. And there were no cell phones there. And there were no computers. So you needed to have a relationship and get that call when they came to town. You weren't calling someone long distance. And, you know, I mean, one night I remember Jimi Hendrix coming up to a party. And our rules were, if you were an invited guest on the list, the security people would let you in. If you were a good-looking woman, you'd... Be allowed in if you are on the list, but no one else can get in. In like fact, I had my brother and his buddies run the valet park, and one night, mm. we came out, and we heard this screaming, and Jimi Hendrix was literally so messed up. It really troubled me to see him that messed up, that he was like shaking this woman without even realizing what he'd done. Well, another really good story was we had a house guest that really didn't like someone who was attending a party. So I had it tasked with going down and asking this woman to leave.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I drove her and her date, who ended up becoming the editor of a big music trade, becoming one of my best friends, out. And when I came back, there's this entranceway, this huge door, opened up into this tremendous winding staircase with a probably a 12-foot diameter chandelier. And Eric Burden was there. And he turned to me and says, where's my conch belt? I said, what are you talking about? Where's my silver conch belt? And he was pretty inebriated. He says, where's my conch belt? I said, Eric, I don't have your conch belt. He goes, you better tell me where it is. And the next thing I know, and he had someone holding on to his leg, and he was dragging this person along. He pulled out a pistol from under his sweater and shot out the chandelier, and crystals were spraying all over the place. He says, where's my belt? I said, Eric, for Christ's sakes, you're living with us. You're our roommate. Rent free. Why did they steal your belt? Oh, you're right. Well, the guy hanging on to his leg, who was saying, Eric, you're gone. He says, let go of leg, was Jim Mars. And, you know, <laughs> who lived yeah. around the corner in Beverly Glen. So, I mean, all this craziness was happening. I'm thinking of writing a book called yeah. Laugh to the Eye of a Madman. Because yeah. I've had those experiences with management clients or certainly at Capitol Records, where you know I was dealing with the entire roster. I have tons of those stories.
1: Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's wild. I figured there's probably, you know, an endless amount of storytelling from, you know, those days. And it's kind of Interesting, you know, for me, because, you know, most of those guys are like historic, you know, icons, you know, I mean, I've seen the movies and the documentaries and listened to the music and, you know, you think about them almost like they're not even real people, but you are like, seeing them as like, you know, kids, young adults, like, you know, in all their messiness, you know, so... Uh, it's pretty fascinating. Let let me ask you kind of, you know, what happens? You go you go work for the record company and 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 that, you know, kind of is the next big step in your career.
0: Yes, what happened was I was working at a management company that was run by the guy who started my career of Jerry Goldstein and we had two artists who signed to Capitol Records. And I realized interacting with them that they weren't real creative. They were driven as a sales oriented company. And I went to the president of the company. I said, I'd like to work for you. He said, what do you want to do? I said, artist development. He says, oh, Bob Dombrowski will be thrilled. He said, no, 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 no. I don't want to work for him. I want his position. I said, well, he was, I can't fire him. He was the salesman of the year out of the Seattle offices. That's what I mean. Six months later, I was asked to come in over a weekend, and they told me they had let go of the woman who ran the press department. And though I'd never been a publicist, I had publicists report to me at the smaller labels before. I said, Don, I'm flattered. I don't refer to journalists as critics and opinion makers. I will not work in an environment where there's a coffee table. I want a desk and a typewriter. And he said, Bruce, we don't want you to become us. We want us to become you. And that started 15 years at Capitol, where I went from the press department then to the emerging, the artist development department with the press department. So I interacted with every artist on Capitol from Paul McCartney and Wings to Steve Miller or Bob Seger, Natalie Cole. And again, I was just doing my job, but I did it in a different way. Like I said, I didn't refer as most publicists did to critics. I referred to them as journalists because I felt they had a responsibility to their editor and their editor had a responsibility to their publisher. So I never dealt in flowers. I always respected them and dealt in facts. I wouldn't even go really promote someone that I felt was, you know, not worthy of their space. And then I ran out of all the artists (laughs) to Don. I've already built these careers I think we need to get in the youth music business. We're not, you know, these are older artists. or at least they weren't really older, but they were established. I said, I want to go to the A&R department. He goes, no, no we're not letting you out. We're great there. And I threw, a, you know, like an empty thread. I said, well, then I'm going to leave. Okay. it gave me a chance to go into A&R. And then I, I was on this incredible run. I'd signed five or six super successful artists in a row, the Knack with my Sharona. I brought Duran Duran to America, Iron Maiden, and it was a run. And I, it was the rumor row principle. Again, I wasn't aware of what I was doing other than I was just doing a good job. And they were grooming me to be a president of the record company because they were moving me from one department to another. Eventually, they wanted me to go back to New York and bolster their presence on the East Coast. And then founded another division of the company. And Capital was a privately held company by EMI, a British company. And one day I was informed that it had been sold to a company called Thorne. The manufactured light bulbs, missile guidance systems, television sets, etc. And found that a guy from Goldman Sachs was in my office the following week with a clipboard. Asking me what we did. I said, Well, AR, I worked, I sign artists, I work with delivering the records, and then I shepherd them along through the system. He said, Well, I see this David Bowie person, this David Bowie person had just sold 25 million albums. So you need to get him in here and make another record for the next fiscal year. And I was saying to myself, if David walked into my office, I would say, hello, goodbye. How can you be missed if you don't go away? Then I started getting, you know, the whole culture changed. And I was getting really, you know, abused about spending money on this terrible band called Red Hot Chili Peppers. And then I was informed that after 15 years, they were not going to renew my contract. I couldn't. I said, why would you do this? You're making too much money. Mm. And I probably knee jerk. And I said, I'm never going to work for someone else again. I wanted to take all the things I'd learned and all my relationships and I went into artist management and mm-hmm. I spent 30 years managing artists. But my bailiwick was artists who had, were undervalued stocks who had one time been very famous. And I really enjoyed learning about their history, reading contracts were 10 or 15 years old and looking to, you know, Change the course of their career, have their value be known. I mean, like, I took Isaac Hayes and I put him in South Park. He'd never had a, vo- a
1: voice age. Let me just kind of hop in there going back a little sure. bit. You know, you were talking about Duran Duran and Iron Maiden and, you know, Chili Peppers and others. You okay. know, tell me a little bit about like what intuitive or kind of like expertise that you developed you know, an ear or, or, you know, an eye, what was it that you would really see that, you know, allowed you to be so good at your job? I mean, I'm sure, you know, even as you're going back, you know, as you go forward into the management and you're, you know, looking for, you know, people that are, you know, maybe, I don't know, need need a new kind of uh, wind or a new uh, boost to energy, you're seeing something, you're hearing something and uh, you know that that's that's a unique skill set tell me a little bit about that
0: well i was never into bubblegum music mm. i was always into something that was new and fresh and some of the artists you mentioned there was no one comparable to those artists and i've always been an outside the box thinker and thought beyond just the world of records you know i was into art and theater and just things that stirred my juices that i was exposed to and I had learned you know, what the difference between good and bad music and authenticity. So when it you know, came to Iron Maiden and the rec company said, oh, man, they'll never get on radio. I said, well, there's something unique about them. And there's this metal movement. All right, you're making a mistake. Or where do you want to sign this disco band, Duran Duran? Or there were these examples. And I was just attracted to uniqueness. Authenticity. I mean, I'd I like to say that I didn't hear music with my head; I heard it with my stomach. Did it make me move before I intellectualized it? Other people, this you know, think, "Oh, yeah, that's really great lyric," but I got captured by the fabric of the music, and I spent my entire career recognizing what I believe will have a career that will. Continue. It's not a flavor of the moment. I didn't care what other people would sign. I only cared about what I thought. And I reach back today and say, "Wow, you know that trumpet, which I discarded in college, that gave me tools that I didn't realize till today that I had because it taught me about melody. It taught me about you know time. It taught me about all these things as a student." And I realized that I could sit with a musician and talk, be in the studio at three in the morning and talk to them about, oh, my God, that's a terrible note. Or, you know, if you repeat that chorus one more time, I think I'm going to rather chew on tinfoil or just those kinds of things. I wasn't aware of them. They just came naturally. It's like someone who's a martial artist. As they're being trained, they say, oh, move your left hand this way, move your right hand. It came to the point where it was an involuntary response.
1: Yeah, sure. But that, you know, I think it, it might be kind of intuitive and, and natural, but, but it also sounds like, you know, you developed it too. I mean, you know, that you um, not just, you know, listened to a lot of music, you played music, you understood what it was like to be around music. You really understood you know, kind of the the that authenticity, that quality, that like something real that you you kind of learn to to really notice. It's a funny thing, like you were talking about earlier about how you um, started to listen to music differently when you were playing it. You know, I, I'm a I'm a, I'm a very very hack, you know, guitar player. I mean, I I I barely know how to play guitar, but I I I love it and and it does kind of shift you know the the relationship to music just just a little bit for me i'm sure the more you get into it the better you are you know the the bigger that shift is but like i i fancy myself as somebody who also can recognize uh, good music and, and I know that's a bit you know subjective but like I think I understand what you're talking about that authenticity, you know that, that feeling that you get which I, I do think takes a little experience to really fine tune especially you know at, at your level where you're picking bands.
0: You know, all the experience in the earlier part of my career and to that point of capital, I've been exposed to the best of the best. So anything that just involuntary response was anything that was lesser. I just didn't feel it didn't stir me. I always had to feel stirred. I never intellectualized it at first. And I I always thought outside the box. I didn't want to replicate anybody. One thing I'm always proud about is the artists I signed or I managed. There was no one like those artists. And. You know, it's like you just start to have the sensibility. And that was all, they all stimulated me. They excited me. I was, and always just like, wow, I'm so proud to be entrusted with this one's career. And it's, a, you know, a sense of acknowledgement. But again, it was just being exposed to really good music and learning about the process. Because I had great mentors. You know, I mean, I didn't know mm-hmm. about a recording process, but
1: I learned. I learned yeah. about sonics. So mm-hmm. did the business aspect of it ever change your relationship to music? You know, I, I, I often, you know, believe that we really should follow the things that we just love and that we can make businesses out of them. You know, if, if we choose to, they can just be hobbies and, and, and you know, passion and, and fun, but why not? also be a part of you know something that you love as a way to make money being in business but you know the, the music business is a is a monster so i'm wondering if you know it ever kind of changed your relationship in a negative way because of the the business side of it
0: that's a really good question while at capital records i realized that, you know how the mechanics of it work and I one thing I don't do is lie. I detest, I have no tolerance for a liar. And I was being asked to present certain business concepts or you know, plans to an artist that I didn't feel sincere about. It. And then I started to see how, you know, there's a thing called recoupable where an expense is charged back against an artist's royalties. And I started to realize that it, it was imbalanced, it was predatory. And here are the, the, the artists I care about. All they have is their career. These business people have, you know, diverse holdings and sources of income. So I really became an artist rights advocate. I cared about mm-hmm. the artists where mm-hmm. I used to look at some of the people I was, you know, worked with as you might as well be a shoe salesman or a used car dealer because without the artist you're nothing. You're nothing. Yeah, this is what feeds the machine. So I once had a boss that would say, you know, mark that recoupable. I said, but it's not a recoupable charge. Just let's see if they find it in the audit. And I was just like, what? That's that's thievery. And right. it became really apparent that it's fairly predatory.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I was wondering, you know, uh, again, kind of like how much of that, you know, your your you know. Hate of of lies, and also then kind of like the um, social um, movements that you were a part of, and your upbringing, and also your your front row seat to being with the artists themselves and seeing them as as human beings. How much of kind of all of that played a role in your care for the artist? You know, you taking more of a artist care approach to the management as opposed to the the you know the business uh, approach
0: well i looked at them as human beings who just happened yeah. to have certain talents and were focused on their careers and other people taking advantage of them and to me it yeah. was just my inherent responsibility as a human being as a citizen of the planet to care Where i, I was surrounded by people who They cared; they had hit records, but they didn't care how they lived, or you know what their finances were, or if they were getting too drugs were consuming them. There wasn't that that lack of concern, and my upbringing played a big role in that, and it does in my life to this day. You know, you have to care; you just don't have to look at the bottom line. And you, when you're surrounded by people, look, I'm a businessman, but I found the balance between respectful, being respectful, and achieving goals that are, you know, numbers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. I wanted to kind of, I figured that's how you would say it, how you would look at it. Um, And I think it's an important thing to make sure is highlighted because they don't have to be, it's not, it's not an either or. You can actually be very successful and accomplish your goals, maybe more so by being caring, Focusing on authenticity, integrity, honesty. I mean, these are things that I think are, you know, really critical to success. And most importantly, you know, kind of how you feel about yourself in the long run. Tell me, you know, when we talk about caring and, and I don't know if I'm skipping over anything important that you want to highlight. You know, you mentioned 30 years in management. You find yourself here in Columbus now. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I know what you're up to. I don't know how many other people do, but I'd like you to just kind of talk about, you know, how you landed here and and what you're doing.
0: It starts with meeting a woman named Beth Jackson in New York, who was born and raised here and comes from a long line of Buckeyes. And <laughs> she was hip she had a really firm backbone. She was stylish. She was intelligent. And it was like, what planet did this woman come from? She has all, ticks all the boxes. And when I came with her to meet her parents for the first time, it crystallized. Because I realized how good and caring. My daughter, she said, "Dad, is Beth for real? I mean, why do you say that, Sam? She's just too nice. I said, that's who she is. And I, like probably yourself, And most people in business look through a specific lens when you go anywhere. So, of course, my involuntary response is to look at a city through the lens of music. And over the 10 years we've been together, prior to moving here, every time I came to Columbus, I'd say, first of all, I love it. It's a city that's philanthropic. I wanted to find a place to live where I could weave myself into the fabric of a city and make a difference. Because in New York or London or Los Angeles, where I lived and worked, you're as relevant as a hiccup in a hurricane. I mean, you really can't make have an impact. And I never felt like I went to work. Never. Until the year before I moved here. And I kept saying, look at the opportunity in Columbus. People are for real. This city has got interesting planning. But unfortunately, it wasn't on the radar of the music business in general. And it was like, a, you know, kind of under the radar gem. When we would have an artist touring and I'd be talking to the agent, we'd be, where are we going Friday? We're going to Cleveland. Where are we going Saturday? Detroit. Where are we going the following weekend? Cincinnati. And it was kind of like, well, we need to really make a certain amount of money this week. So hey, let's see if we can go to Columbus on a Wednesday. When I came here, I said, this is just a perfect market. So I mean I decided at the end of the day, which I skipped over, that I just said, you know what, I want to change the quality of my life. I want to be close to my in-laws who are you know, kind of hit their 90s. I didn't want a phone call, I wanted to be here. So I just closed shop, say goodbye to Sinead O'Connor, say goodbye to my consultancy clients, and just jump, decompressed, and said, wow, this city has all these venues. It has lots of recording studios. It has people that love music, but it has no infrastructure. And I was going to do a deal with someone here who's in music, who wanted to finance me to start a new company. And a neighbor said, you know, there's a music commission. They're looking for their first executive director. And I said, well, that's interesting. Maybe this is a way for me to give back some of the good that's been given to me. Because throughout my career, I've, nurtured interns and mentored young people who've gone on to become very have very significant careers. And this person said to me, you're out of your mind. Why do you want to do this? I just want to do it. I just feel a calling to do this. And so that's what got me to the Music Commission. And, you know, the the mantra of the Music Commission was they call us a better place for musicians to make a living. And I said, that's a pretty broad statement. I can't find my magic wand. I never worked in a nonprofit environment. The only board I ever reported to is a bunch of piranhas who won a 10% every single you know, fiscal year. I like the people who may you know, comprise the board. They were really diverse. And I applied for the position. I was vetted with 50 some other candidates for five months. And I was like kind of getting impatient. When are you guys going to make up your minds? And then finally, in August of 2018, they voted to recruit me. So I realized, because I had been going to venues, meeting people in the music business here, that quite a few of the artists I'd met who were having some degree of success locally and regionally didn't know anything about the business of music. You know, one of them was arguing, well, Spotify doesn't pay royalties. I said, yes, they do. They're minuscule. Have you ever heard of Sound Exchange? What's that? They're a body that was formed to fight for artists' rights. They will help you collect royalties. I said, if these artists don't know about that, I'm sure that no other musicians know about it. So the first thing I did was created a program called Music. Business Mondays, which is now softened to Music Mondays, and over you know three years, I've had six thousand attendees, but fifty-five significant leaders and experts in music come to Columbus in the last couple of years, virtually, and it had a double purpose. One. Was to educate and enrich the lives of musicians and students, but the other one was to put Columbus on their radar. And every single one of them, we you know leaves Columbus saying, Gee, "I had no idea." What well, they do now, but does do philanthropic organizations or the city government or the county want to help finance quote a bunch of musicians to learn about the business? So. I visited Franklinton Preparatory Academy and realized that it was, you know, three-quarters of the kids lived below the poverty line, the other 25% hovering at it, and they needed instruments. And I walked out that day with, literally with tears in my eyes. I said, that's it. We're having an instrument drive. And we called it the gift of music. And to this day, in two three drives, We've collected and donated 2,200 instruments at a value of a quarter of a million dollars. So you know, I've been going through this progression and all the time trying to espouse from the pulpit the value of music intrinsically and economically. So we put these other programs together. I knew that kids today, unlike myself, grew up not knowing there was a business of music. Today, young people know there's a business see. It's pretty obvious. So I decided that with coming out of the pandemic, that many of the local businesses couldn't afford to hire more people. They had let people go or they couldn't find employees. And here are these young people who want to get in the music business and have not a job, but a career. So I started a program called Earn As You Learn and financed at $15 an hour young high school students, some just high school graduates and young college students to work at CD92.9 and Orange Julia Recording Studios and music go around. And it was a super successful program. I mean, it's like great to see all these little mini people coming out and some of them earning thousands of dollars. So then I said, how do we put, start to build if my end game is to improve the quality of life and espouse the value of music How do we become a music city? Because doing that will enrich everybody. So Brian Ross had asked me to help put some music together for the ASAE conference in 2019. I said, Brian, we're going to have music everywhere. And they crystallized. Oh, music Columbus, music everywhere. So I started to basically work with Greater Columbus Arts Council, the commons to utilize music, local artists, To enhance Food Truck Thursdays, silent. Now there's artists at those 12. Um, Short North Alliance and all the other organizations of high traffic organizations or locales, which receive uh, matching funding to some extent through GCAC, now carrying that logo. Because music tourism is huge. So we're building what I like to call a pathway to prosperity. All these little steps now getting us on the radar of government and other organizations. People like yourself say, oh, you're doing good at this community. You're helping youth. You're helping people of all walks of life. And I guess the the end game is to maintain that, grow that, but that we should become the nationally recognized music city we deserve to be. Because we've been launching careers in Columbus and in central Ohio for seven decades. Going back to Dean Martin and Doris Day and Roy Rogers, the singing Cowboy, and whether it's Devo or Rascal Flatts and Dwight Yoakam and John Legend and 21 Pilots and Camp and Lydia Lovelace. And, and they all have four things in common. Born here, raised here, career started here, and every dollar of their income stream benefits a different state. And why is that? No business infrastructure. And one of the goals for me is that I'd like to see us get the financing to start a nonprofit, non-predatory record label, which can give the the tools to a young artist or a blossoming artist, where they can't afford a few thousand dollars to do a video, or they don't know how to get global distribution, except like everybody else, through distro kids, Or provide studio time, or a person who's expert in digital media, or someone that could take it to radio. And it all ties into, you know, kind of it's like, like I said, this pathway. So, you know, the every major city that's become a music city started with a record label of great note. Memphis had Sun Records and Stax Records. Chicago had chess records Nashville started with dot records you know if you'd say what are the what's the s- s- visual you associate with Hollywood it'll be the Hollywood sign in the Capitol Records building and you know it's just been like that so anyway that's Yeah, let me ask like, you yeah.
1: yeah yeah so so that's great and you know I really appreciate it you know you and I have talked about what you're up to before it's good to kind of hear the full scope and you know I think what strikes me is that like becoming a nationally recognized music city isn't going to necessarily just happen you know it's it's something that you've got to build over time by supporting and developing musicians and in having this business aspect i like the idea of the non predatory non profit label and then you know i guess my my final question for you as we're starting to run out of time is like what's the big thing is it the label or is there something else that's like the big thing that you think puts us over that hump? Like, what is this all working towards? And then, like, what's the end result of it?
0: Well, it's a combination of things. Like, you know, venues of national note. The City Winery is opening its 10th location here at the end of this year. I called Michael Dorf and said, Michael, you need to come to Columbus. There's a vacuum for a venue of your type here. And he said, you're right, I love Columbus. Kappa is taking the church they've owned for five years on 3rd Street across from the Sheridan, and it's going to be turned into a more contemporary venue. So it's venues. It's a sensibility that music tourism is important. Also, there is discussion of creating a music density zone or district. And I think that we've got all these great venues, but where are they centralized? You know, you've got, you know, Ace of Cups and Space Bar and Dirty Dungarees up, you know, at the far end of High Street. But I think, actually, it's germane to yourself that trying to build something like that in Franklinton would be a likely place because of the old bones. It's, you know, adventurous It's got an art scene. It has progressive thinkers there. And also attracting large festivals. You know, we've had Rock on the Range, which, you know, transferred to um, um, Sonic Temple. That's the longest running rock concert series in America. You've got Promo West and Kappa, which are known nationally in the music business. So it's not going to be an overnight process. But I think it starts with attracting people here. And I don't know if I've given you the formula. It's kind of like, you know, I shoot from the hips sometimes, and
1: yeah, no, no, that's okay. No, it's it's working, and I can see it happening. And yeah, we're we're excited about the conversation in Franklinton, and actually, my next guest is Jim Sweeney, so we're talking Walnut Street Live and everything else. You know, you and I have talked about as far as district goes, and I know we're going to get together and try to make that happen. I, I want to see that happen. I I agree. You know, for me personally, as a as a you know lover of this city and a lover of music, I I think we do lack that kind of concentrated experience of music that you know, like, hey, you can go down to that neighborhood any weekend, any night, and you're going to hear music. And it almost doesn't matter, you know, kind of who's playing because you're going to, you know, get that feeling of being around live music. And, And I think we need to do that as a city. I think this city would love it. And I think it would be good... On a number of levels, including economic development and tourism, so I'm on board, and I love what you're doing, and uh, it's fun to hear your story and and it, just a little bit of it. I know there's there's so much more we probably didn't cover, but you know we ran out of time, and and I'll give you a chance for any you know final thoughts. Mm-hmm. There's music in all
0: of us, and we should take advantage of that because you can't find anybody that doesn't know how to tap their toe unless they're in a morgue. So I think everyone just has to open their eyes to what the value of music is. Everything I've outlined from early human development to economic development. Because you can't have economic
1: development without having human development first. No question. No question. Wonderful. Well, Bruce, look forward to working together and and making some music in Columbus. And thanks for uh, your time and sharing your story today.
0: Thanks. I hope I came off right. I mean, you know, this Bronx voice just... Speed
1: wrapping. Uh, ah, no, I love it. I love it. And the audience will too. It's good to see you. Thank you. You, you too. You too. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the gravity podcast. Music for the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.